I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. In this episode, we'll discuss the supply chain challenges the United States is currently facing. We'll also talk about Ambassador Catherine Tai, the USTR's recent speech reaffirming U.S. support for the WTO and what we can expect at the November Mysterial Conference of the WTO. Plus, we'll talk about China's trade policy review at the WTO. Stay tuned for all that and much more on this episode of The Trade Guys. The Trade Guys are back. And some of us, maybe all of us, will find out, have our mind on supply chain because that's all anybody's talking about this week and for the last several weeks. I mean, for Lord's sake, you you can't get black beans at Chipotle right now. I mean, the world is coming to a, a full stop. Scott, what is your take on this? Well, the most hilarious sign I saw was apparently a Dunkin' Donuts ran out of donuts. You, you would think that's impossible, but uh, look, there seems to be an everything shortage right at the moment. I mean, if Dunkin' Donuts runs out of donuts, you got to know. I mean, this is getting dystopian here. No question about that. But look, what we have going on is a giant su- supply shock. And uh, I'll describe how we got there and maybe what we might do to get out of it. But but look, this this is mostly related to the COVID pandemic and government actions surrounding it. So you, if you go back to the very beginning of this pandemic, the government decided to put in a massive fiscal stimulus mostly because we were paying people to stay home. This was back in the days of 15 days to slow the spread. But uh, in the meantime, while we basically kept people whole through fiscal stimulus, the checks that we mailed out, a lot of the uh, sectors of the economy wound up getting closed down. We've kind of flipped the light switch on key services sectors. Well, as 15 days to slow the spread became 20 months, which is roughly where we are now, there's a lot of variation, in, but there are still restrictions in place. So we're not back to a normal economy. Now, what happened is because people weren't working but had money and couldn't spend it on services, they couldn't take an airplane flight, they couldn't go to a movie, uh, they, there's a lot of things that, that were simply closed that, where they normally would spend money, people bought things. And we noticed this early on, goods demand spiked in the United States and elsewhere because of this. Now, while goods demand was going up in the aggregate, you also had some very important services sectors like transport and distribution, which were because of closures, having difficulty responding to that increased demand. And basically we got behind a couple cycles and and it's only gotten worse since then. So you may recall, in the early days, maybe two weeks into this, we talked about why air freight costs suddenly doubled. And the answer was we canceled all the passenger uh, air flights and with a, with an airplane fuselage, about half of its people and half of its cargo. And so we by canceling passenger flights, you take away cargo space. Well, what, what's happened is uh, through, through all these services that have been not enough people working in them and not working efficiently because maybe people are sick, they're missing work, they can't get to work. There are restrictions on movement of people and uh, all those, uh, and the number of people willing to work in these circumstances. You wound up with 
slowdowns almost everywhere. So think of trans-Pacific trade, which is where we're worried about things from, from Asia coming into the West Coast of the United States. If you think about it as a pipeline, what we did was constricted the pipeline. So in normal times, you have container ships that make maybe seven or eight round trips a year trans-Pacific. We're now down to three or four. And the reason is there are backlogs at ports at both ends. Everything's moving more slowly. And this is now just compounded. So that's the story. And uh, we're still short truck drivers. And so, you know, it's one thing. It will be nice to have the ports be as efficient as they can be. But it, it's called a supply chain for a reason. And every link of the chain kind of matters. Do you have warehouse space? Do you have rail cars? Do you have trucks? You have truck drivers, and all many of those things are, are still in short supply. So it's a scramble. So I have a couple of reactions to this, Scott. First, do you know how many Grateful Dead and Eagles T-shirts I bought during the pandemic? Yes. My wife wants me to th- wants to throw me out of the house because I bought so many. I beefed up my my rock and roll T-shirt. Question oh. is, how many how many of them do you actually wear? They're they're great. They're awesome. And then. Scott even got me a tie-dye from the Piggly Wiggly down in South Carolina, and that's like a prized possession. I wear it all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, but here, here's the question I have. In the description you just gave, you know, a lot of people talk about worker shortage. And some people are saying, well, the workers aren't coming back because they had these stimulus checks. Other people are saying they're not coming back to jobs because the jobs don't pay them a living wage and they just don't want to do the jobs anymore. And if we were to be able to raise their wages, we would get a lot of workers back and that would really help alleviate part of the problem. What, what do you guys think about all that? Well, look, it's, it's fairly subtle, okay? Because for instance, one of the things we know is there are too few truck drivers uh, versus the demand for truck drivers. Uh, the industry tells us there are about 60,000 truck drivers short uh, versus where they would like to be or what, what demand would, would justify. Well, there are a number of problems with it. They, when you ask the industry, why are you short? They, they, they start with things like, well, there were some retirements or people took different jobs. But then they get to the very, some very interesting things like during COVID, truck driver schools closed down. They were considered non-essential. Well, if nobody's enrolling in truck driver schools, there are no new drivers because it's a licensed occupation, all right? So the reason for shortages, I think, is, is more subtle than that. We do need to get people back to work at some point, okay, if, if, to resolve this problem, all right? And, uh, uh, but it, it, it'll take more analysis. And I, th- I think what we have to do is really rely on the people who are doing this for a living and ask them, where are the bottlenecks? Where, where could you really use either capital or, or people to solve this problem and what can be done to help out. So, I think the question of why people are leaving the workforce is, is going to turn out to be a, a really interesting one. Uh, I think when historians write about this, this era 10 years from now or 20 years from now, they may say that we may have overstimulated the economy. It didn't seem like that at the time, but we may have. It appears that, though, that people are leaving uh, jobs for multiple reasons. First of all, don't forget, you've got the cohort of, of baby boomers like me that are aging and are going to leave the right. We're going to leave the workforce anyway, just because uh, we're old and it's time to retire. It is not time for Bill Reinch to retire. We need Bill Reinch. <laughs> Thank you. That inspires me to last at least two more weeks. Two more episodes. 
wages gets blamed, but it, wages have been going up lately, uh, and I think, and and you've seen a number of, of a number of companies going. I hesitate to say, say voluntarily. I don't know that they have a lot of choice. Going to fifteen dollars an hour or more at the, the minimum wage level, I have a feeling that for a lot of of people, particularly in services, it's working conditions and benefits more than anything else. People want a health plan. Uh, people don't want. You know, Amazon's gotten into trouble for this. You know, people don't want quotas that don't give them time to go to the bathroom. People want uh, working conditions that they regard as more pleasant. Yeah, you know, and, and I've noticed that Amazon's sort of been addressing this criticism in one way by having these advertisements on television where they show how they helped, you know, a, a young immigrant get his nursing degree. And, and it like, it doesn't jibe with, you know, Alec McGillis's book about Amazon and with all the other reports we've heard about the conditions workers work under and how they've been treated. To me, it's, it's uh, in a way, this is kind of a good sign because it's sort of the, the revolt of the workers. And, you know, we've had 30 or 40 years of employer supremacy, really, uh, and we've uh, had weaker unions and uh, plenty, plenty of labor, and wages have been kept down. And now it's, uh, I think, the, the employees are coming back and getting even. And I think they've got, under the circumstances, they've got more market power uh, than they did before, and they're beginning to exercise it. Uh, that's going to require uh, an attitude adjustment on the part of companies and on the part of employers. And it's going to, it, it may end up adding to inflation because, you know, one answer to this is you need to, you know, you need to provide more benefits, you need to provide more wages, you need to provide better working conditions. And the employer's thinking, that's going to cost money, so I need to raise my prices. And so then you've got inflation. Uh, I mean, the other solution to this problem, which is the unorthodox one, is why don't you just make less money? You know, and why don't you pay your CEO not, you know, 25 times the average wage in the, in the company, but, you know, five times the average wage in the company. But that's going to require a huge rethink on the part of uh, uh, corporations, which I'm not expecting. Well, look, you know, if you go too far in, the, in, this, uh, in this kind of a uh, constrained supply situation, you wind up with stagflation. Supply shocks often wind up creating stagflation. Certainly, if you go back to the 70s, the main supply shock was the OPEC embargo of 1973 that started off uh, one of these waves uh, that led to slow growth and very high levels relative to, relative to recent times of inflation. We have what we have brewing now in where we ought we ought to urge caution is uh, with low workforce uh, penetration. Uh, if you look at the, the most recent jobs report, you know the size of the it wasn't the unemployment rate per se, but the workforce is still smaller than it was pre-COVID, and mostly with women in uh, in uh, two hundred households. So that there's some things that the jobs report will will say to us, but at the same time. I think we can be practical about letting people transition back into the workforce. And let's try to eliminate some of the roadblocks that we have, some of the bottlenecks that are constraining operations. So good news that the Port of Long Beach in Los Angeles will operate 24-7 at some point as they, as they get scaled up. But maybe that's not the rate limiting factor. Uh, maybe we ought to look at other regulations. You know, to keep in mind, during a pandemic, we often suspend regulations. We spend, spend a product liability uh, rules for the vaccine development. So 
Uh, who knows? There may be an obstacle there that we could relieve in the near term by, you know, delayed enforcement or whatever and get, get, this, get, get the cycle time back up where it needs to be. Well, Scott, as you said, we've got the optics of container ships backed up miles and miles away into the ocean from the ports that they're trying to enter. I heard the other day about a report on the New York Times about container shortages as well. Certainly at the ports, that's been pretty well documented that there's a labor shortage, that there's a, a lot of confusion and that they're overworked and all of that. None of this can be particularly good for the Biden administration, especially one over on Fox News. And the Republicans are saying you're not going to get your Christmas presents on time because of Joe Biden and the supply chain crisis. What's with that? Is this just more politicization or is it is, is it real? Well, look, it's a complicated problem. And it, it is these macro factors pushed us into it, but it's been going on for some time now. In fact, I, I, I looked at a, did a search on the wallstreetjournal.com and I found articles about the supply chain difficulties going back almost a year. Okay, and so this has been a topic, but it's now reached a point where the cycle times have slowed down, everything is backed up, everything's in short supply. So it'll take a while to work out of it, but uh, you know there are some, there are some things that I think the administration, if they focused on it, they could do it. Uh, they might want to think about, we've got this big infrastructure bill. Are we investing in the right places? I mean, one of the things that, that we observed uh, by looking at the uh, World Economic Forum's logistics performance report is that uh, they rate ports by throughput efficiency. And there are zero U.S. ports in the top 50 worldwide of throughput. Now, zero. Okay, now the, the, this big trillion dollar bipartisan bill spends $60 billion on Amtrak, but $40 billion on ports and airports. So now's a good time to ask ourselves, if we're going to spend a trillion dollars, are we spending it in the right place? Okay, so there, I think there are some, there are some steps that can be taken. That there's also problems that are, that are not federal problems here. There are state regulations and local, re local ordinances that if you thought about them, maybe the bottleneck that you, you could relieve for a little while and help things get back on track. So it's a bigger problem and it's, it's not only in Washington. Bill? I agree. I think we, I don't have a lot to add to that, that point. It's not entirely a federal problem. Uh, I think the other distinction too though, and Scott has talked about this in the past, is that some of these problems are short-term and work their way through, and some of them are long-term and are not gonna be solved even by the things he's talking about. If you look at the semiconductor, the, the, the chip shortage, for example, that has a lot to do with, I think, miscalculation uh, in the auto industry about their needs, which was COVID-related. But, you know, there's a capacity shortage, and that doesn't come online in three weeks. You know, that, that comes online over years. So there's really not a lot that you can do about some elements of this. All right, guys. To be continued, because I'm sure this is going to be something we're going to be talking about in weeks to come, let's shift to the WTO. Catherine Tai says that the United States is committed to the WTO and wants it to succeed. We have the ministerial conference coming up uh, at the end of November. Tai said in a recent speech, the Biden-Harris administration believes that trade and the WTO can and should be a force for good that encourages a race to the top and addresses global challenges as they arise. What do you guys make of all this? I did a column on that this week, and it, it um, the title comes from uh, another T-shirt, not one I got from Scott, but uh, the, well, the T-shirt of the, the, the large, ferocious dog. 
uh, with a slogan, lead, follow, or get out of the way. <laughs> That's sort of where we are right now. Uh, Catherine has endorsed the WTO and explained that the United States supports it. But as she did in her China speech at CSIS, she didn't offer a lot of details about exactly what the United States is going to do to, you know, to bring it back online, if you will. And frankly, I, I don't, I see a lot of, uh, I, I see, I don't see a lot. I see some rhetoric and it's the right rhetoric, no question. I don't see a lot of leadership. And I mean, in fairness, it's complicated for the United States to lead an international organization because sometimes uh, a U.S. proposal is a kiss of death for the standpoint of other countries who are just going to, you know, uh, knee-jerk oppose it because it came from us. So we do a lot of sort of leading from behind, to use an Obama term. We get other countries to float proposals that we like, but I don't see a lot of that. And I don't see much, I don't see us actually doing very much. You know, on, on the vaccine waiver, she got a lot of ink by announcing that we were going to support a waiver. But uh, aside from going to meetings and urging everybody to reach agreement, there hasn't been much beyond that. Uh, they haven't offered uh, uh, you know, any proposals to try to reach compromise. In fairness, the Indians and the South Africans don't seem to want to compromise either, so it, you can't blame it all on us. But in the fisheries agreement, so far our contribution has been to, at a late date, come in with a proposal on forced labor, you know, which is a good proposal, but it's not central to any of the issues that are, that are uh, making agreement difficult. It would be nice to see the United States digging into some of these things and trying to uh, use its influence to produce favorable outcomes. Uh, I don't see a lot of that. And I was distressed when we talked, I talked with her in her, in her China speech. Is, uh, she really affirmed what uh, people have come to suspect anyway. They don't really care about market access. You know, they care about labor and the environment. And it's, it, market access is not a high priority. But for, for a trade agreement, that's central. And that's what most other countries care about. So we kind of have a disconnect. Bill's right about the United States having a very delicate role in these multilateral institutions, that if we look like we want something too badly, uh, we'll, we'll generate opposition just because of that fact. So uh, it's, it's tough being the U.S. On the other hand, we've had bitter complaints from Geneva for the last five years about the U.S. attitude toward multilateral institutions in general and the WTO in, in, in specific. Well, look. The Biden administration is the best case scenario. If you are a foreign, a foreign government official who favors multilateral cooperation, this is as good as it's going to get. And so now's the time to to uh, to stop complaining and and try to pull something together. I mean, this is for me. What's missing in the WTO is the work of the the senior officials and and ambassadors on an ongoing basis, not leading up to a ministerial not up against some time crunch, but where they work together and, and develop options, develop plans that actually have a chance of surviving and, and moving forward. So look, you've got, you've, you're pushing against an open door with the Biden administration. Don't expect it to get better with whoever follows whenever that happens. So get, get something done now. I just don't see it. So I'm a little jaundiced. So speaking of WTO, as we speak, as we do this podcast, China is actually facing a tough week at the WTO. And why don't you guys tell us about this? Because it relates to some of the things that Catherine Tai actually said in her speech at CSIS a couple of weeks ago when you hosted her bill. 
You know, she then said it's increasingly clear that China's plans do not include meaningful reforms to address the concerns that have been shared by the United States and many other countries. So I'm assuming that's what this review at the WTO is all about. Yeah, well, first, just for background, what the WTO requires that every country go through a, a review, which is sort of a peer, it's a peer review. And uh, the secretariat uh, writes a report, the government in question writes a report, uh, and then other people get to get to comment over a couple days. For big economies, for the U.S., Japan, the EU, and China, it happens every two years. For small economies, it happens less frequently. I think for developing economies, it's maybe every five years. But, you know, and the, so the, the, today and, and Friday, uh, China's in the hot, hot seat. It's their turn. I think our turn was in the spring. So, we, you know, we're not exempt from this. But it was an opportunity for uh, the U.S., among other things, to complain about the U.S., about Chinese massive subsidies, industrial subsidies, and its tolerance of forced labor, which they chose to focus on, and basically accused them of using a state-led non-market approach to trade uh, to the detriment of workers and businesses in the United States and other countries, using them, accusing them of undermining the trading system. Now, on Friday, they get to respond. So we'll see what they, they say. I think uh, our statements were followed by the EU, and I don't, I don't know what they said. But it's, it's sort of a chance to, uh, you know, hold them up to global scrutiny. Uh, on the other hand, it not, nothing ever comes out of this because it's, it's, you know, it's a review. And they have two days of bad ink, and then, you know, two years later, they do it again. It gives people in uh, the media in Geneva something to write about. Uh, but there's there's nothing unique about the review itself. It happens to be the 20th anniversary of China's uh, accession to the WTO and their membership in the in the organization, which is disappointing in, in and of itself. If you look at how little's been accomplished in the succeeding 20 years, uh, having said that, uh, it, it's uh, it's important that the WTO continues its function of transparency and reporting because at some point they're going to get they're going to want to negotiate something. And uh, you, you want a starting point uh, where people are calibrated r with regard to others' behavior in the institution. So, you know, it's, it's this week's news. Uh, I, d I doubt anybody will remember what's been said. You could have the, that be positive if there's a great outcome uh, in the upcoming ministerial conference, or if there's the uh, disappointing outcome, we'll focus on that instead of whatever happened this week. Well, and meanwhile, the WTO, back to our original discussion about supply chains, the WTO director general has warned that global supply chain problems could last several months. Well, she's, she's not wrong. It's just that it's not a trade policy problem in general. I mean, we're the trade guys. We love trade policy. But, but this, these are much more practical matters. Nobody raised a tariff that threw the global supply networks into a tizzy uh, most recently. Scott, do you want to tell us about the, the cartoon that you sent us this morning? Because I think our listeners need to know about this cartoon. Well, look, the, you can tell how, how far and wide an idea has circulated, whether it appears in the New Yorker magazine. Okay, uh, the, the New Yorker, uh, we knew the internet was something big when the New Yorker ran a cartoon with two dogs looking at a, a beige box. And one dog said to the other, you know, on the internet, nobody knows your dog. <laughs> which was really prescient joke. But in this case, it's an individual, a young man walking with the Cookie Monster. And Cookie Monster saying, 
you know, what, what we want to know is what does supply chain outages mean for cookie? So <laughs> that's how le the level of concern among the American people. And if cookie what monsters worried, maybe we all ought to just take a breath, but it's big. I mean, when, when you've got cookie monster worried about how he's going to get his cookies, you got a serious national, if not international problem. I, I guess I have to ask you, how early should we plan to buy our holiday gifts, guys? The experts are saying, the logistics people are saying is, if it's not on on land now, you won't get it. Wow. So, I, like I said, the cycle time has been slowing. And the, it's one of those, if you think of it as a pipeline, it's been constricting for some time now. We're just, we're just now realizing it. So we got to work our way out of the problem. It's worse than ever, but it's normal to ship Christmas stuff in August and September. Sure. So this has been, I know that, that happens every year. Uh, this year, it's, the problem is not that it's not being shipped. The problem is, by and large, it's not getting in. Although Scott also uh, alluded to this, there are there are problems at the other end. And yes. one of the things we've seen in some countries, Vietnam is, a, is an example, is COVID outbreaks that, that keep workers from going to the factory to make stuff. So you've got factories that have shut down and you've got factories that are shorthanded and they're not all, uh, in every case producing the stuff that's been ordered. Um, and then when they do and load it on, on board, then you get the problem that Scott did talk about, which is, you know, offloading it in, on the West Coast. One of the things that I don't understand is, Scott, maybe you know something, is why don't some of those ships that are backed up go to Seattle or Portland or someplace else or Vancouver, for that matter? Or why don't they uh, go through the canal and come out in Houston or New Orleans? Uh, the canal is a size issue. All right. If you're, you're, many of these ships are bigger than a Panamax, even with the expanded canal. Uh, but uh, most of this is contracted. The port operators are, are private entities that, that operate on long-term contracts. So I'm sure there's some of, the, some of that at the margin. But there are, back, there are backups everywhere, as, as I understand it. And it's, it's warehousing, and, and which, is, which is both warehouse space and workers, and land transportation, whether rail shuttles or trucks, truck drivers that is probably the crisis almost everywhere uh, i guess for christmas andrew my advice is go to etsy and buy local this is a good year for for christmas presents from local local makers and local manufacturers good point guys we'll have to keep talking about this because when cookie monsters got us on the hook we know we have to answer the call Thanks today for this great discussion. I learned a lot and I don't know whether to be, you know, scared or a little bit satisfied that I know more, but good news that we're more informed. Thanks guys. I really appreciate it. Have a good week. Bye-bye. To our listeners, if you have a question for the trade guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.